for listening to the Sports Daily. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. A good Friday show for you heading into the weekend. We're going to talk a little bit about that Nuggets parade yesterday in Denver and Michael Malone stealing the show. We're going to talk golf because we're at major time, and I get into the majors of golf. Yesterday, L.A. Country Club, something that hadn't been done in 27 years, was done twice in a span of 25 minutes. We're going to talk a little bit more about that SEC schedule that came out and some things I forgot to mention. We'll look at one of the other tough schedules that I saw that I said yesterday, Alabama and Georgia were one and two for toughest schedules in 2024. Wrong. There's another team that has a tougher schedule, and it's not even close, I don't think. Shohei Otani is doing Shohei Otani things. And again, another step closer to the Oakland A's leaving Oakland for Las Vegas. And we'll get to that momentarily. So let's start yesterday in the city of Denver. Look, it's not like Denver hasn't had successful teams in their city. The Denver Broncos won back-to-back Super Bowls, and then they bat with John Elway, and then they won one with Peyton Manning. They, last year, were the Stanley Cup champions, Colorado Avalanche. So it's not like this is a long-suffering city that's never seen a champion. They had just never seen their Nuggets team win a title. For the, and for the first time in 47 years, they did on Monday night. Yesterday was the parade, and I'm sure you've seen some of the highlights from it. The highlight for me was head coach Michael Malone absolutely hammered getting up on the mic and saying we're going to run this shit back <laughs> because he was basically slurring his words. I mean, that's that's just funny because – In an environment like that, you kind of see these people outside of their element because, for the most part, when you're the head coach of an NBA team, you can't do a post-game interview hammered. You can't do a pre-game interview hammered. You say all the coach things. You give all the PC answers. Hey, they just won an NBA championship, first ever for the organization. They're out in front of God knows how many people were out there in downtown Denver. He's drinking up a storm. And you put a mic in front of him, and the guy just let loose. Really funny and really cool to see. So congratulations to the city of Denver for all that. Even Nikola Jokic developed somewhat of a personality yesterday when he took back what he said on Monday night when he asked, hey, when's the parade? Oh, Thursday? Damn, I got to be home. And he said, I don't want to be home. Shit, I want to be here. And so good to see him, although I'm sure – Jokic is on a plane back to his hometown as we speak and will be riding horses by the weekend. But really cool to see. And like I said, not that they're a long-suffering city. They just had a champion last year when the Avalanche won the Stanley Cup. But I think it is good to see. The Rockies have never done anything. They've never won a World Series But Broncos have been a successful franchise in the NFL. Avalanche have been really good. Nuggets and Rockies are the two that have been the ones that haven't brought home a title until Monday night. So good to see that. Congrats, Denver. I want to talk a little golf. And I want to talk about the U.S. Open first round yesterday in the books at the L.A. Country Club. And we seem to see this every year especially when it comes to the U.S. Open, because the U.S. Open is the prestigious, you know, it's the United States Open, and it's played at a different course every year. Some courses will repeat every five to ten years or so, but 
for the most part, different course every year. And the one thing that U.S. Open prides itself on is they want to make it the toughest major. They want the winner to be close to as par as possible, and they want to grow the rough out and make the greens lightning fast. Well, in the 127-year history of the U.S. Open, nobody had ever shot a 62. And then two people did it yesterday within a span of 25 minutes as Ricky Fowler goes into the clubhouse with a major tying record, 62, and then Xander Shoffley, less than a half hour later, cards a 62 as well. If you watched it yesterday, I wasn't very impressed with that course at all. And the funny thing is, leading up to the tournament starting yesterday, on Tuesday and Wednesday, I'm looking through TikTok, and I've got golf stuff on my TikTok, and I'm seeing people drop balls into the rough, and the ball is disappearing. Then you watch the tournament yesterday. All these guys can get out of the rough. Yes, if you drop a ball into the rough and it disappears, your local hack that plays once every two months would not be able to get out of that. No, these are pros. They know how to handle rough. There was nothing tough about that course yesterday. It played, not only did you have two guys shoot eight under, but if you look at the overall scoring, it was one to two strokes better than the last five years, at least in round one, the last five U.S. Opens. Overall, the average score was a little one over par. It was 71.6, I believe, and par is 70 on that course. They got five par threes and three par fives. Really weird course. Funny thing is, I used to drive by that course all the time when I used to live in Culver City, or close to Culver City. So, for the longest time, I didn't even know, like, because it's covered. When you're driving by on the street, you can't see any holes. It's covered by tree lining. But I just think it's so funny, because every year as we seem to get this, oh my god, the U.S. Open's going to be so tough. Look at the way the ball, the ball rolls. And these guys, oh, just keep it out of the... If you're not in the fairway, you're automatically going to get a bogey. These guys can all get out of the rough. I don't care how deep it is. Literally, unless you're sitting in the fescue and you have rough up to your knees, like you see in the British Open sometimes, these guys can play. They're pros. There's a reason they're on the PGA Tour. It's because they're really, really good. And all this talk about, oh, my gosh, if you put it in the rough around the greens, you're just gonna you're going to miss the ball because you can't even see it. Yeah, not quite. Two guys shot eight under. Nobody in the history of the U.S. Open had ever shot a t- 62, and then two guys did it yesterday. Like, come on. It's not that hard for them. But something interesting that I was reading yesterday in regards to the U.S. Open, and obviously this is something that old-timers, I think, either get upset at or get bothered by, but I was reading this in regards to the U.S. Open and how much the purse is. In 1973, 50 years ago, Johnny Miller won the U.S. Open at Oakmont Country Club. And you know what he won for that? (laughs) $35,000. The total purse was $219,000 50 years ago. Then, just seven years ago, the purse was $10 million. So if you adjust for inflation, that 1973 purse where Johnny Miller won $35,000, if you adjust for inflation, he would have won 1.5. And in 2016, the winner would have won 12.6. 
This year's purse is $20 million. Just seven years ago, it was $10 million. So I don't, you don't hear a lot of people complaining about it. I don't care how much these guys make. It's because it doesn't affect me in any way, shape, or form. But I know there are people out there that complain. Oh, my gosh. I, I told you the stat yesterday. Tiger Woods made more money before he ever hit a golf ball on the PGA Tour than Jack Nicklaus made in his whole career. But I don't think, you know, Jack Nicklaus can't be bit. It's just he was born at the wrong time. That's all it is. And 50, 60, 70 years from now, I'm guessing those players are going to be laughing at what the players are making right now and being like, oh, my gosh, they only made $2 million when they won the U.S. Open. We're making 20 now. Like, we just don't know. But we have an idea. In 50 years, the purse has gone from $213,000 to $20 million. So what makes us think that in 50 years from now, the purse isn't going to be 40, 60, 70 million dollars? Very well might be. But let's back up and let's ease off on the whole, oh my gosh, this is impossible. I mean, we're looking at we're looking at a US Open where the winner is probably going to shoot double digit under par. You know? You got two guys at 8 under, we got plenty of guys at 6 under. I mean, they're tearing up the course. Now, maybe the weather gets worse, and but it's L.A. I mean, how much worse is the weather going to get for these people? Like I said, we got two guys at 8-under. You got Dustin Johnson at 6-under. Rory's at 5-under. You got DeChambeau and Harris English and Scheffler at 3-under. I mean, there's, let's see, there's 37 guys that are under par out of the 155 in the tournament. So, and I, you know, we've seen tournaments in the past where after the first round, there's like four or five people under par. This course is not that tough watching it yesterday. I watched about three hours of it yesterday, and uh, there's nothing about this course that scares me if I'm a pro. All right, let's get some more SEC schedule talk in here. Because yesterday when I was talking about the fact that the SEC released their 2024 conference schedule with Texas and Oklahoma coming, the one thing that I forgot to mention is the fact that SEC after this year is eliminating divisions. So that's why they're having this kind of round robin of who plays who. And you're going to play everybody at least twice in a four-year span in conference. But they have no divisions after this year. So that means that Alabama and Georgia can play during the regular season and then still play for the SEC championship because it's just going to be the top two records at the end of the regular season. 16 games or 16, 16 teams, whoever has the best record, that's your winner. Or whoever has the best record, the top two records are going to the SEC championship. I don't know what the tiebreaker is going to be, if it's going to be head-to-head or what it is, but... You know, I read to you yesterday's conference schedule for Texas and Oklahoma and Bama and Georgia. I just read you the conference. You know, with eight conference games, that means they have four non-conference games. And most of them might have one semi-tough one or maybe real tough one, and then probably three patsies. Well... (laughs) I didn't see this until yesterday, but here is the 2024 full schedule for the Florida Gators. Now, I don't know how good they're going to be in 2024. I got to see how they how they play this year 
and then see who's coming back. And then obviously with the transfer portal, basically teams are turning over every single year. But holy shit, the Florida Gators better be ready to go in 2024 because they start the season at home against the Miami Hurricanes. Then they've got an easy win because they've got Samford at home. And then they've got a somewhat tough game because the UCF Knights are an in-state team and UCF has been good in recent years. And then they've got this gauntlet of games. <laughs> Their remaining nine games <laughs> I just for the Florida Gators in 2024. Home against Georgia. At Florida State. Home against Kentucky. Home against LSU. Home against Ole Miss. Home against A&M. At Mississippi State. At Tennessee. At Texas. Not in that order because the dates haven't been set yet. But basically your four non-conference games are Miami, Samford, UCF, and Florida State. So they're playing both their two in-state rivals in Miami and Florida State. Maybe You're probably not going 2-0. Maybe you go 1-1, but easily could go 0-2. Samford and UCF, you hope to go 2-0. But then your eight conference games... Or Georgia, LSU, Ole Miss, A&M, Mississippi State, Tennessee, and Texas? You could literally be looking at 0-8 or 1-7. Like I said, I don't know how good Florida's going to be in two years. I don't even know how good they're going to be next year. But holy shit, that is a murderer's row schedule. They didn't do them any favors. I mean, I mean you can conceivably say this could be a 2-10 season for Florida. I'll give you Samford. And I'll give you UCF, but <clears throat> Miami, Florida State as your other two non-conferences, and then those eight conference games? Are you kidding me? That is unreal. Now, one thing I was talking about yesterday in 2024 is with this 16-team SEC and the eight-game conference schedule and looking at murderer's row that Alabama has to face. Obviously, Florida now has to face Georgia, Oklahoma, Texas. And I said, look, Oklahoma and Texas are looking at 9-3, and 8-4 and four seasons consistently, probably in the SEC. A 10-2 and two or 11-1 and one would be huge for either one of those teams. But when you look at it, remember, in 2024, we're going to a 12-team playoff. Now, with the four-team playoff in the years that we've had it, I think this is going to be year number 9, 10, of the four-team playoff, there's never been a two-loss team that made the college football playoff. It's either been undefeated or one-loss teams. Well, I can tell you right now, not only are you going to have two-loss teams that make the college football playoff once we go to a 12-team format, you're probably going to have a 9-3 and team that makes it. Because let's just say this Florida team in 2024 goes 9-3 and with that schedule. I guarantee they're going to be one of the at-large teams because they're going to have the number one strength of schedule in all of America. And you're going to you can be able to say, like, look at our resume. Look at who we beat. To go 9-3 and three with that schedule? So while it is going to be tough for the SEC, and these guys are all going to beat up on each other, and you're going to have some 9-3 and three teams, I can pretty much tell you right now, 9-3 and three teams, if not two, at least one of them every year, a 9-3 SEC team is going to make the SC, the college football 12-team playoff as an at-large. Count on it. 
because nobody will have played a tougher schedule, and that's going to be huge in the eyes of the committee that chooses who the six at-large teams are. And if you're sitting there at 9-3, and three, certainly 10-2 and two is going to get you in. Out of the SEC, with the schedule that they're playing now, it's a done deal. Yes, in a four-team playoff, we've never had a two-loss team make the playoff. You're going to have two-loss teams make the college football playoff with 12 teams, if not a three-loss SEC team with a gauntlet of – because they're going to rack up a lot of good wins. So just keep that in mind as we head into – I know I'm skipping over the 2023 season because I really want and I'm really excited for this 2024. I'm – I'm all for the 12-team playoff, and I still want to see how they finally decide on home games and neutral site games and how they're going to do this because it's still not set in stone. All we know is the first four seeds are going to get buys, and then five plays 12, six plays 11, seven plays 10, and eight plays nine, and the lower-seeded team gets that first game on their home field or at least somewhere close to their home field if their home field has horrible weather. Now, after that, that's where it gets tricky. Are they going to give the four teams that got to buy at least their home game in the quarterfinals, or are they immediately going to put that into a bowl game? That's what we don't know yet. And that's what I'm looking forward to finding out and seeing it from there. But look, the more good matchups, I'll say this until the end of time, The more good matchups we get in college football, especially ones that we're not used to seeing, the better the sport is. Moving on to baseball, another ho-hum season for Shohei Otani going right now. The Angels take three of four from the first place Texas Rangers. They won 5-3 last night. Shohei Otani started the game. And he... He won. He's now 6-2 and two on the season. And if you look at his numbers for the season, just utterly ridiculous. This is just the pitching line for Otani. He's thrown 82 innings. He has struck out 105. He's given up 51 hits and 35 walks. So he's barely. So you know what they, you know, the, the stat whip, walks and hits per innings pitched. So he's given up 86 hits and walks, and he's pitched 82 innings. So his whip is 1.05, which is ridiculous for a guy who's also not playing Roy Hobbs in every other game he doesn't pitch. But yeah, just his batting, or just, sorry, just his pitching, 6-2, 82 innings pitched, struck out 105. The ZRA is, what's his ZRA at now, 3? No. 3.29 to be exact. Actually kind of struck, I don't want to say struggled yesterday, but only struck out three in six innings, which is well below his average considering he has 105 strikeouts in 82 innings. So the fact that he pitched six innings and only struck out three, that's got to be a season low for him. But 3.29 ERA, he's 6-2, and and then at the plate hits his 22nd home run of the season, which is tied for the most, or it takes his, I think he's tied for the most now in, in all of Major League Baseball. He's hitting 301 with 22 home runs and 54 RBIs. <laughs> he's got 10 stolen bases. He's got 13 doubles. He's a, a 300 he's going to have 
close to 30 home runs and probably 70 to 75 RBIs by the All-Star break. As a guy who's also pitching with an ARA hovering around three. He's the best player in all of baseball. He's going to get a five or $600 million contract at the end of this season, probably from one of the big teams, Red Sox, Yankees, Dodgers, Padres, Cubs, one of these teams, big market teams, because he can demand whatever he wants, considering you are getting an elite, elite number one starter and one of the best power hitters in all of baseball. So, again, I don't care what he makes. I don't care if they give him a $700 million contract. It's not my concern. You can say, well, he's not worth that. No athlete is worth that. They're worth what an owner is willing to pay. As long as that check doesn't bounce, who cares what they make? And if Mike Trout is getting, what, he got $450 million? This is a guy that's hitting. This guy, this is a guy that's doing something that's never been done in the history of baseball. He's going to get five, six, seven hundred million. It's going to be something totally out of this world. People are going to complain about it. I'm just going to be like, "Good, get your bag, Shohei," because at any point you could blow out your UCL, just like we've seen so many other pitchers do. Get your money. But this guy, what he's doing. Second night in a row against the Rangers, he hit an opposite field home run that went 440 feet. You just, like I said, but he plays for the Los Angeles Angels, and nobody cares. If this guy played for the Yankees or the Dodgers or whatever, people would be talking about him every day. He is the best baseball player of our generation, and it's not even close. Because he does two things on the field. He pitches and hits. We haven't seen that in years. Babe Ruth what was the last person to do this. I, I don't even know the answer to that question is. And he's excellent at both. It's it's unreal what he's doing. And finally, last baseball note, the Nevada governor, Joe Lombardo, signed the bill yesterday for the $380 million in public funding. Now the only thing that's left for the A's to move to Las Vegas is Major League Baseball to approve it. I believe they need 24 of the 32 owners to approve the move, and that's basically, according to all accounts, a formality. It's going to happen. So now it's just a matter of where they decide to finally build this stadium. Are they going to do the whole thing where they bulldoze the Tropicana and the stadium is there? Do they find another place on the Strip? We don't know yet, but sorry, Oakland fans, but your team is moving to Las Vegas just like your football team did. And I, you know, look. We won't know until it actually happens. It seems like their projections are a little high, thinking that they're going to sell out every game just because it's Vegas, it's entertainment capital of the world, opposing teams' fans are coming in town. I, I, don't, I don't know about that. Yes, you will have fans at the games, and yes, tourists will go to the games, but it's one thing to say, hey, and in 16-game NFL season, if you're the, I don't know, take, take some team on the East Coast, New England Patriots or Carolina Panthers playing a road game in Vegas, that's a one-game thing where you could be like, hey, schedule came out, our team's playing in Vegas in October, our team's playing in Vegas in November, let's make a weekend out of it. That's one thing, because it's football, because every game in football is important. Are you really going to be like, oh, my gosh, our team is playing a three-game series a weekend in April? 
let's go to Vegas for the weekend to watch our team play. You'll have a few, but I don't think in baseball traveling to see your team play, especially in a 162-game regular season, is nearly as important to people as it is to go watch your NFL team play one game a year that happens to be on the road in Vegas. I think they're miscalculating that, but what do I know? I'm not the person that's owning these teams and putting together all these renderings and what they expect. Yes, Vegas is the entertainment capital of the world. It'll be cool to have now three professional teams with the Vegas Raiders, with the Vegas Golden Knights, and now with the Vegas A's. And we all know the worst-kept secret in the NBA is that Seattle and Las Vegas are going to be the two new expansion teams within the next three to five years. So even that's being talked about right now. There's already talk about a $10 billion complex going up somewhere off the strip to build an arena and a hotel and a mall and all that to get the, the get the NBA team when they eventually get the NBA team, and that's where they're going to play. So Vegas, while they're not a media capital in terms of a, media, a high media market, they're one of the lower media markets in all of – professional sports but look you got good teams you got a Vegas Golden Knights that just won the Stanley Cup you've got a Raider team that's at least competitive this A's team if they move to Vegas I'm guessing the owner will try to put out a better product I don't think they're moving there to have the lowest payroll in baseball again and field a team that wins 60 to 65 games every year I don't think that's happening and then a, a Vegas NBA team, I think, will be huge for them because they could play at T-Mobile Arena and just share the arena with the Golden Knights for the first however many years it takes to get that baseball stadium or the, to get that basketball arena built. So uh, looking forward to it. It sucks for the Oakland A's fans. The A's have been around, I think, since the 60s in Oakland. Maybe Oakland will get another team later on down the road. It certainly doesn't look like it the way things are going, but you never know. But this is – I mean – it's such a cliche, but money talks, and this is all about money, and that's why the Vegas A's are going to be a thing now. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Please subscribe and Apple Podcasts. Pass this podcast along to your friends. That certainly helps the podcast rate and review it. Hope you give it five stars and a good message. I really appreciate that. So I hope everyone has a great weekend. The Sports Daily will be back on Monday. And remember, sports will always be the greatest reality show on television. Oh, no, no.